0: Terra Incognita. Terra, Incognita
1: Terra Incognita Fiction Welcome to the Terra Incognita Speculative Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Stevenson. Put simply, Terra Incognita is the best Australian speculative fiction told by the authors who created it. The programme is podcast monthly, and this month's show features Aurealis award-winning author Louise Katz. Louise writes fantastic fiction, and her story for TISF, A Little Demon, with a nod towards Hans Christian Andersen, plays with some of the themes that infuse much of her other works. Themes of magic, folklore, alchemy, and the ever-attentive spaces between the worlds where beings wait and plan just below the liminal.
0: Now this world is very wide, and so is the next one, and the one after that. I cannot vouch for more, or even if there are more than three, for three are as many as I have seen. It's quite often the case that inhabitants of one domain may have heard rumour of the existence of life in other worlds, but it's only on very special occasions that direct contact between species occurs but it does happen. In fact, it was only quite recently that it happened to a human and a demon. Demons, and angels too, live in the air, in great mansions of cumulus, and prefer to remain invisible to their neighbours. Bats, who are very sensitive beasts, are aware of them, but being blind have never actually seen them. This doesn't bother bats, for they've never seen anything else either. Demons may occasionally manifest themselves for short periods of time but they cannot affect lasting changes in their world or in any other. In any case, it would be extremely unusual for a demon to attempt an act of creation, for creative impulses are born as much of flesh as they are of mind, and demons have no flesh, no material substance of their own. Once upon a time there was a demon lord who lived in one of the larger, better appointed castles in the air. He was long since widowed, so his countenance was grim. But he was wise and clever and occasionally good. Like all demon folk, he was not troubled too much by virtue. Fate and his beloved wife had blessed him with six children, all of whom were geniuses in their own particular ways. His first daughter, Discretia, knew how to disguise dangerous truths with the most convincing lies, while her twin, Indiscretia, could cause quite a stir by simply speaking the truth. Nick was the most talented thief, and Bushell contented himself with merely hiding things, from pins and pencaps to agendas and motives, while young Beatrice would help folk find things that were lost, from hope and trust and luck to that excellent recipe for hot and sour hail soup. Then there was Merrily, whose spirit was so light, so joyous, that he was almost impossible to control. His constant pranking brought embarrassment as well as joy to this demon family. He never seemed to understand that there are always consequences to every action. It was the occasion of Merrily's 300th birthday. He was the last spawned, the baby of the family, and the most beloved of all, for not only was he extremely lovely to look at, but he possessed the sweetest humour, the sharpest wit. To be in Merrily's presence was to be happy. 300 is the age at which demons reach their prime. For the benefit of humans reading this, 300 demon years would correspond to about 30 in mortal terms. In preparation, the demons had shifted some continental plates in order to clear a space for dancing, organised a monsoon to water the garden, and detonated a few volcanic eruptions, for no party is complete without fireworks. Merrily and all his siblings and friends had a rollicking time. But now, as was the custom on three hundredths, the time had come for the special coming-of-age experience itself. Merrily was to descend from the air to visit the mortal world where humans live. Three hundredths were one of the very few occasions that demons were allowed, for reasons of protocol, to materialise for the purpose of hobnobbing face-to-face with humans. Merrily felt some trepidation on this momentous occasion, but it was not in his nature to show it. Instead, he cracked a joke to make his excited and anxious siblings smile. As the escort party of Demon Lord and Progeny made its way towards the rim of the world, discretion took Merrily aside. Little brother, I do want you to enjoy your visit over there, but a word of caution. Keep close watch over your heart, your mind, your money, because men are a shiftier bunch of shysters than even our darling Nick. Why is that, do you think, sister mine? One theory is that all their troubles are caused by that soul thing they have. Sneaky beast soul hides itself somewhere in the conjunction between spirit and flesh. Humans are part flesh, you know. We demons are safe, since we don't have any flesh, and therefore no conjunction, but I have seen soul in action, and it's mean, baby brother. It's viral. Kills them in the end, always. But in the living meantime, it fills those mortal minds with such an array of conflicting fears and doubts and yearnings, all born of dreadful desire, that they're probably the messiest conundrum in the cosmos. So take care, little Americans, okay? By now the demons had reached the fringe of cloud that marks the beginning and the end of their world. And don't forget, Merrily, you must return at the very first sign of dawn, lest you lose yourself in the light of day, cautioned Bushell. I won't forget replied Merrily, who by now was quivering on his hooves in anticipation of the adventure before him. And so Beatrice banged out a few devil's tritones on the portable perplexicord, while their father, the demon lord, slammed together his most powerful pair of syllables. Ha-boom! And without further ceremony, Merrily was on his way. On the worst day of her life, Delia walked into purgatory. Ahmed's dick and the boiling witches were playing. It was very dark in there and very loud, which was exactly what she needed. Dark to hide in, noise to kill her thoughts. She ordered a double vodka from dear old mother Russia and drank it down quickly before going into the laundry to put on her costume and make up her face. The laundry, with its comfortable smell of washing and its pleasantly domestic sound of whirring machines, always made her feel calmer. After dressing, she sat on a basket of straw and waited for her cue. Soon she heard the witches winding down and her band winding up. After a couple of warbles, a whine and a howl, came Ahmed's drum roll. Princess Delia shimmied through the curtains, resplendent in bangles and frills and a few gauzy bits which covered most of her, except for her dainty toes, her slender arms and a glimpse of a little round tummy. It was at this moment that Merrily, fresh from the ether, materialised at the bar, Fortunately, all eyes were fixed on Princess Delia's garnet navel ring, so nobody noticed his eccentric mode of arrival. He staggered a bit at first, being unaccustomed to the weight of a body. Phew, he muttered to himself as he slipped onto a bar stool. This gravity deal here they have is really heavy. He ordered a Bloody Mary and turned to watch the floor show. Princess Delia stood in the centre of the large stage, then slowly turned until her slender back was towards the audience. She raised one arm in a languid salute to the band and the guitar murmured softly to itself. She moved her body almost imperceptibly. A tiny dip of the shoulders was all at first, exposing her nape. Those few downy centimeters of woman's skin at the opening of the stylized garments implied everything else that was hidden. Hidden but known to be there, bound up in a fabricated abstraction of gauzy folds, a disciplined container for sex. She stamped her foot, and fantasies of eastern concubines dropped away in a snow of remembered peonies. The volume of the music increased. She strutted like a flamenco dancer, inviting everyone to take her in. She began to move her arms, her hips. She danced, and her dance was unself conscious and unadulterated, despite and because of the pornographic stares of the audience. I am the procurer's confection, sang the Lissom Arms the hips, her lips, carelessly. Her dance was style, it described what she was in purest terms, and she didn't care, for her dance was an animal's dance. The soul that animates doesn't trouble itself with the impression it makes. She danced her dance that was banal and cruel and coarse and magnificent. Oh, by all things diabolic and all things angelic, thought Merrily, how lovely she is, how completely miraculous. Nothing had prepared him for the sight of a human abandoning itself to sensation. Merrily was suddenly certain that every delight he had ever experienced was a frivolous, shallow thing in comparison to this human-animal version of joy. He was thrilled and shocked to the very core of his ethereal being. Princess Delia's eastern-western flamenco belly dance ended abruptly. It seemed that someone had flicked the off-switch on the light which had energised her. Merrily, for whom love and laughter were as natural as breathing as to a human being, felt his tender heart ache for the suddenly melancholy princess. She let herself down from the stage and moved back across the floor to the bar. The barman placed a complimentary vodka before her. She drank it down like medicine. Of course she noticed Merrily sitting nearby, for he was now as visible as the bottles on the shelf and the drinkers at their booths. She thought, now that is a seriously made-up person in intriguing fancy dress. She could not gauge his gender, or whether he was ugly or beautiful, young or old, for humans cannot judge demons at all. Still, she found this odd aura of ambivalence rather compelling, a factor to distract a girl from her sad thoughts, and diversion was what she craved, through dance, through drink, through lovemaking, through novelty. What else was there? She noticed that he had the longest nails, and that the nails were a very deep, dense, matte black. The skin was absolutely white the effect she assumed was heightened by Purgatory's lighting. Then the apparition spoke. You are beautiful, he said, politely inclining his horns. Delia, startled, shifted her stool back a few centimetres, but the weirdo in fancy dress was determined to persist. You are lovelier than an armoury of lightning rods. Your beauty is more radiant than all the fires of Vesuvius. By her astonished expression, Merrily gathered that perhaps these were not the sorts of words she was accustomed to hearing. He tried again. Have one on me. Delia was bemused, but she felt no threat. In fact, she'd begun to notice a slight easing of her heart that even the dancing had been unable to induce. The relief was lovely. She even smiled. Thank you, she said, graciously offering Merrily a scintillating twinkle of her violet eye and a glimpse of sweet little pearly teeth. She shook her long hair and raised her tumbler. Cheers. Merrily smiled and took a sip of his own drink. So, she said, you're a demon then, I suppose. I am. Horns and tail and all very traditional. I like that. Thank you. My name is Merrily. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, oh, sorry, but, you know, you are a very cute and funny demon. Are you particularly Wicked? Wicked? what is that? Merrily was rather taken aback. I'm merely a genius. I inspire the mind. Do you? Oh, excellent. I could do a little inspiration to tell you the truth. Buy me another drink, will you, Merrily genius? And so Merrily and Princess Delia sat and talked through the night. She confided in him the reason for her unhappiness. She said she was almost at the end of her tether and that men, in her estimation, were on the whole the most terribly unscrupulous bastards. Merrily agreed, having heard the same thing from his sister in Discretia only that morning. And Delia told him of her lover, Bruno, who'd left that day to return to Brazil. Merrily had never heard of Brazil, but assumed it must be some other place in the animal world. So he told her of his life in the sky, which brought a smile to her lips. He described the occasional shifts he did with the angels, helping them carry messages between the living and the dead. This story made her flesh creep deliciously. And when, with a playful twinkle, he told her a tale or two of demonic trickstering, his favourite pastime, she actually laughed out loud. How charming he was! What a delightful sense of the absurd! Her eyes, which had been so grave, were now alive with lovely sparkling lights. Merrily did not mind being laughed at, not at all, for now he existed only to make her happy. However, too soon, far too soon for Merrily, the sun began to rise. Thin-fingered Dawn had already begun to insinuate herself through the shuttered windows of purgatory. He had to excuse himself. But don't forget to come back and see me again, little demon. I will be back, he replied, taking care to leave by way of the door, before reversing his father's syllables, clashing them together and evaporating on the deserted pavement. Back in the overarching heavens, Merrily found that he could think of nothing but beautiful Princess Delia. He took to spending an inordinate amount of time in the observatory, which is the place from which demons, who have come of age, keep an eye on humans bumbling around in the world. So Merrily became an obsessive human watcher, or more specifically, Delia watcher. Delia's routines became his own. He watched her wake up in the morning. He watched her eat her breakfast. He sent her his love, impregnated with special trickster demon joy, so that for the first time in a long while she savoured the bitterness of the coffee contrasting with the sweetness of the honey on her toast. He watched her lock up the big double doors to the warehouse where she lived and clatter down the iron staircase to catch the bus which would take her to her day job. He watched her at work, where she spent the day staring into a lighted box with little written characters moving across its screen. He sent more Merrily lightness to her so that her colleagues noticed her change of heart. Perhaps she's in love, they whispered to each other in the tea room. She almost always went to the cinema on Tuesday nights. She had a standing date with friends. Merrily came to know her favourite performers and movie themes. After the movie, the group would walk to a nearby bar or cafe where they'd eat a light supper and enjoy a few drinks. He quite liked her friends but worried that she drank so much. He also attended her yoga classes twice a week. He did not like her instructor, who seemed overly familiar when adjusting the limbs of his students to conform with the traditional yogic postures. On Saturday mornings her warehouse became a dance studio. He loved to watch these classes. Whether awkward or proficient, Delia treated all of her students with respect. She was a kind, patient and devoted teacher, and the students themselves were a wonder to behold, the disciplined way they learned to contend with that gravity deal filled him with admiration. Fate had loaded the dice against them, yet there they were, nobly aspiring to freedom from physical constraint. So brave they were to work against these devastating odds inflicted upon them by nature. And he never missed her performances at Purgatory. It was there that she was most truly alive. The music energised her, touched her somewhere in her strange human being. Her dancing never failed to thrill the little demon. He also felt a strange desire to partake of whatever this animating force was that she experienced through dance. He longed to feel what she was feeling. He wanted more than her proximity. He wanted to be her. Each fortnight she engaged in a ritual which utterly mystified him. She'd get into a little car and drive to a place he came to understand was called airport. She would park the car, then go and sit in a plastic seat on the observation deck. Once there, she'd remained staring out of the huge plate-glass windows for an hour or sometimes two as the incoming and outgoing flights came and went, came and went. There seemed to be absolutely no point to the exercise, yet she performed it regularly and each time, without fail, it would make her cry. Merrily was both saddened and perplexed. One day, about six months after his first encounter with the princess, he saw her set off on one of her airport excursions. On this particular day, for some reason, he felt unaccountably uncomfortable once she was inside the car park. Perhaps it had been the sight of her so small and vulnerable, driving right in under the great sign that said, Terminal. Demon thinking is surprisingly intuitive compared to most other immaterial life forms. So he decided to expand his vision a little beyond the immediate vicinity of the object of his desire, for to be forewarned is to be forearmed. He checked out the broad concourses where people wandered to the tinkle-plink of electronic versions of Rolling Stones songs. He looked in at the waiting rooms and the bars. So unlike Purgatory, all faux wood panelling and laminex for easy cleaning. He observed the sad and solitary patrons in the Formica cafes, moodily unpeeling their sandwiches from the plastic packaging. He watched the customs offices and runways and loading docks. Nothing was out of order, he was deciding, when a great roar rose up from the observation deck where his beloved was seated. The roar was followed by a blinding light, and then all was a chaos of smoke and flame. At first Merrily thought, oh, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. Princess Delia will be carried up to me on one of those delicious eddies of fire. But then he remembered that humans cannot bear the flames, so beloved of the demon folk, Their mortal flesh dissolves in its embrace, and so merrily, with a fine disregard for every demon rule that was ever written, leapt through a hole in the ether and plunged towards the earth. His princess was lying, unconscious, amongst the debris created by the bomb blast. Of course nobody could discern a demon amongst the licking flames and boiling clouds of smoke, for these are the basic elements of which demons themselves are composed merrily lifted Delia in his arms and carried her away from the site of the disaster to the other side of the airport and the safety of one of the great cool airplane hangars. He laid her gently on a tarpaulin and then looked around for somewhere to hide while he waited. At the back of the hangar was a little kitchen for the ground staff complete with cooker, fridge, a calendar with a picture of a pretty woman called September and a poster in red and black featuring an image of someone who could have been a member of Merrily's immediate family. He carefully arranged his elements in such a way that his formal aspects blended into this advertisement for Mephisto and composed himself to wait until someone came to find her. Very soon a group of young men entered the hangar, A particularly handsome one with dark curly hair and pilot's insignia on his shirt ran forward to where the princess was lying. As he leaned over her, she opened her eyes and uttered a sob of joy. Bruno, what are you doing here? What am I doing here? Christ, have I died and gone to heaven? Are you dead too? What hush, love, replied Bruno with great tenderness. We're both very much alive and you are very lucky. Merrily did not mind that this Bruno received his princess's innocent gratitude. He was simply glad that she was safe. He stayed until the ambulance arrived to carry Delia away. And so his love lived, but without him. Merrily was in some kind of hell. He spent even more time in the observatory. He sent loving thoughts to Delia to hasten her recovery. He chatted encouragingly to her pot plants so that her apartment would be full of pretty blooms when she returned from the hospital. He watched over her each and every day. He also began to broaden his understanding of the workings of the mortal's realm. Much of what he learnt frightened him, for humans, he found, were full of terrifying passions. But how marvellous this lust for life could be. When Merrily looked into those orderly but fascinating minds and watched the interplay of feeling and thought which occurred unconsciously but with such dramatic effect, he was quite envious. And he saw great wonders too, both natural and manufactured. Now, at this point, you must remember that for a creature without materiality, such as a demon, the creation of things of substance is as mysterious and strange as demonic propensities would be to a mortal. The native inventiveness, that is the hallmark of human creativity, stunned him. Things, objects, amazed him, whether useful or decorative. Their metal tools and plastic artefacts, their formidable cathedrals of stone, their glittering cities of glass, the beautiful images they carved from rock or painted on screens of canvas, all of this filled him with awe. Merrily began to wonder how all this was possible. Why did they do it? How did they come to think of doing it in the first place? It was beyond the reach of the cleverest kinds of demonry. He began to think of himself and his people as shallow tricksters, lacking depth, lacking lustre, and was filled with envy for these strange, living, breathing, constructive beings. He asked himself, what is the stuff that fills them up and fuels this mysterious energy they have? What is it that makes them dance? Is it something to do with that thing that exists within the conjunction of matter and spirit that indiscretion told him of? Is it soul? Is this what soul brings? He even dared think that it might well be preferable to be human rather than demon, and soon, this idea became a conviction. In the meantime, his siblings began to worry about him, for no longer was he the laughing, jesting baby brother they adored, but a disconsolate, mooning thing. Eventually, indiscretion could bear it no longer. What ails you merrily? she asked. Now the little demon badly needed a confidant, for he was a demon with an innate leaning towards open-hearted communication. So he told in of his fascination with human beings in general and his love for Princess Delia in particular. But brother, you can't, she exclaimed, horrified, which is just what Merrily had expected, and he cursed himself for a fool. But they are so vigorous and daring and very, very clever, he protested, and their creations are so grand and proud and they last for years and years. Truly, they're a miraculous race. Puh! replied in Waste of energy. It all comes to dust in the end. Dust? Why? It seems to me that if they're not consumed by flames or suffocated by smoke, they must surely live forever. Nonsense. They go out just as we do up here in the sky, only they call it dying. And their lifetime is but a fraction of ours. Demons live to be a thousand years old, whereas humans cark it after about seventy or so. The whole human deal is awful, ridiculous even. I mean, it's like being born and then having to fit everything into about five minutes before, zap, she clicked her fingers to illustrate the brevity of human life. Oh, Merrily was aghast. But that's appalling. And privately, he thought that perhaps it was the provisional nature of their life that compelled them to such feats of creativity. There are compensations, Indiscretia was saying, indiscreetly, When we expire, it's the same as when a candle is snuffed out. There's a small poof and we are no more. But the human soul is eternal. Although after death there's no more living flesh, the immortal soul enters into the things of the world and life continues. Into grass, into water, into sunlight. That's how mortality works. Merrily's face grew sad as he wondered why, by all things sacred and profane, demon folk had not been granted immortal souls. It was terribly unfair, a freak of nature. How can I procure a soul for myself? Merrily, it's as good as impossible. You must be loved by a human. But that's what I desire. Baby brother... Indiscretious said, in that slightly patronising tone that Merrily had always found annoying, human love is not so easily won, and the quality of the love you need must exceed that of father, mother, country, even of life itself. We're talking truest, deepest, most unselfish love, and believe me, for I've been watching them in action for longer than you, this kind of human love is hard to win. They want it, they need it, but they fuck it up every time. The human heart is a frail and unreliable thing. Where we mate for life, they're terribly promiscuous. You know what, Americans? When I come to think about it, it's humans who are the true tricksters, not us. They trick themselves, always telling themselves, this is the one, this is the one for me, but it never is. We demons have a much happier time of it than people do. The world of matter is terribly disorderly. You wouldn't like it you wouldn't even understand it. How could you? Even material life forms themselves find their lives incomprehensible. Leave well enough alone, baby brother, and put all these thoughts from your mind. Accept what you are and be joyful. But Merrily could neither accept nor be joyful. And so he resolved to seek advice from the shaman who was known as wherewithal the wise, yet whom others called the fool ancient child and infant sage, embodiment of contradictions, wherewithal would tell him what was to be done, wherewithal would know how to go about winning a soul and the love of a human princess. The shaman lived deep within the wastes, a terrible place that existed in a part of the universe which was not of the air like the palaces of the demon folk, neither was it substantial like the world of matter where the humans lived. It was a fluid place where ectoplasmic ghouls and spectres, ghosts and wraiths, moaned and clanked and wrung their knobbly hands in mourning. To find the shaman, merrily made his way through the sucking bogs, where dreadful things grabbed at him with poisonous tentacles, trying to drag him into their fetid depths. On he went, braving the briny wakes of loathe, the tracts of tumour, the palls of pox, and on and on until at last he passed through the gates of gore and into the safe haven of wherewithal. The room was queasily illuminated by the livid glow from the dead men's cheeks with which the walls were padded. Merrily tried not to mind the decor too much, for he understood that as well as providing light, the resilient cheeks also protected the shaman's frail old body whenever he threw a visionary fit. After he had grown accustomed to the sickly atmosphere, Merrily detected the shape of wherewithal hanging from a filthy tattered web in the corner, reading a magazine. Oh, goody, called the shaman. What a treat, a visitor. Greetings, little demon. He laid aside his journal and beckoned Merrily with outstretched pincers. Come, closer, for although I possess the wisdom of ages, I am also rotten with years, and my eyes are not what they ought to be. Wherewithal grunted painfully as he shifted his numerous limbs, all arthritically twisted into a range of interesting shapes. Ah, me, I am old and wise and ill, bitter and cynical, unlike your youthful demon self. You will never suffer pain, never want for any joy, never yearn over something that is beyond. Oh, but I do, shaman. And Merrily's eyes filled with tears. This drew Wherewithal up short a creature of the air, crying like a mortal? How strange. The youngest, sweetest, one-time happiest demon had engaged his interest. Six of his eyes boggled, and the seventh stared in silent appraisal of this extraordinary example of demonkind. What has possessed you, you anomaly you, that you should be overcome by emotion? I have seen the realm of humans, and I would be part of it. Wherewithal cackled sarcastically. "'Oh, yeah?' he grinned, exposing his one remaining fang. "'You desire mortality? You desire a soul?' "'Yes, for I have witnessed the wonders of manifest creation, "'and I... I... I have... You have what?' "'I have fallen in love.' "'With a mortal? (laughs) That's a good one. "'Best one in millennia for my money.' Oh, wherewithal! I want to hold her. I want to feel her living skin. I want to feel her warm human breath. I want to be her. The shaman chuckled, a dry, papery crackle, like the sound a snake makes when shedding its skin. And what would you do in order to love her, to be her love, to be her? I would do anything. Well, 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 actually, there might be some little thing I can do for you. The shaman gangled down from his cobweb and feebled over to his work table. He rummaged around for a while amongst the files and bottles. Now, where is it? Here? Nope. There? Nope. Um, There? Nope. Oh, fat poopers. Finally, he found what he was looking for. From within a pouch of finest phoenix skin, he withdrew a small vial of dark glass. Oh yeah, this is the stuff, he merbled in glee, holding the heavy, not quite opaque bottle up against the leery glow of the most bruised of the wall cheeks. What is that stuff, wherewithal? Hm, little demon, take heed. If you were to drink the contents of this bottle, your bright scales would fall away. Pooh, like so. Your lovely little budding horns would shrink back into your skull. Your tail would vanish. And each time you were to take a step on your new human feet, the place where your hooves once were would pain you. You would feel knives driving into your souls. This is what it takes for a demon to become a mortal. Give it to me. Give me the potion. Merrily's eyes were fever bright as he held out a shaking hand. There's no going back, you know, dearie. Once you've drunk this lot, which contains precious drops of my own rather nasty but very valuable blood, you can never return to your family. If I can be with her, I will not want to come back. And if your princess chooses to love another, then you will die. By the end of the day that she gives herself in matrimony to another man, you will be breathing your last. Do you get it, baby? Wherewithal smacked away Merrily's grasping little claw. Listen to me, dammit. If she chooses to love another, you will not attain an immortal soul like other humans. You're risking love and life, a very long life. I will take that chance. I must. Very well. But still the shaman held on to the bottle. Four of his eyes glinted craftily. Two had a rather pathetically desperate cast, and the other one held the little demon's gaze with chilling focus. He hissed through his mandibles. There is a fee, you know. Ask it. I will pay. Ooh, so decisive. I'm impressed. Well, what I want is your most engaging personal attribute, my sweet. I want a touch of that demon wit of yours, which is born of your delightful humour bit of life and laughter in my miserable retirement by gum give me a little of that old trickster joy gear merrily but protested the little demon but how will she love me if I lack charm the shaman smiled a crooked smile you have charm to spare and levity also if you give me what I ask doubtless you will feel a little heavier of spirit but them's the breaks little demon and in time she may come to love you for your devotion for your patience, for the mystery of yourself. And in a harder voice, he added, Take it or leave it. I will give you what you ask, shaman. It's yours. Then come closer, sweetling, that I may breathe in the essence of your power. Come, place your lovely lips upon my own. Soon Merrily was making his way back through the gates of gore, the pools of pox, the tracts of tumour, into the briny wakes of loathe and out by way of the sucking bogs. His spirit was heavy, for not only had he sacrificed his native lightness of spirit, but he might never again see his beloved family. For the first time, Merrily knew what it was to feel depressed. Yet there was hope in his heart, for soon he would be with the Princess Delia. He told himself that she would come to love him in return, and he would gain that brilliant, evanescent thing, a human soul. Archie Typhus and the Jungians were playing in purgatory. Merrily disguised his arrival in a puff of smoke. He sat at the bar and ordered a Bloody Mary. He drank it down quickly, then retired to the men's room so that he could drink the shaman's potion in privacy. But the men's room was full of men. He left and went in search of a place where he could be alone. In the basement he found a little room full of bags and dirty white uniforms and linen and machines that whirred and hummed beneath dripping pipes. The room was small, uncomfortably warm, but private. He sat on an inverted basket of straw and quickly drank down the contents of the bottle. It stung his throat and made his eyes water, for it was very harsh. But as the bitter liquor coursed through his veins, the pain he felt was exquisite, for he knew that it was his means to true love and an immortal soul. His bright scales dropped away, his tail and horns vanished, his hooves were replaced by those awkward plates of flesh that humans call feet, merrily blacked out. When he came to, the first thing he saw was the face of his beloved princess, She was squatting at his feet, holding his two hands in her own and rubbing them vigorously. He watched gratefully as she fetched a glass of water from the sink and brought it to him, inviting him to drink. You don't smell pissed, she said. Neither do you look like a junkie. But what on earth are you doing here in the laundry? Merrily had no idea of what she was talking about. And while he was still racking his brains for a reasonable answer, she continued. Did someone attack you? Were you mugged? "'Mugged?' he answered, but dearly did not hear the question mark in his voice. "'Oh, you poor bugger. Did they take everything? Looks like it. "'Oh, dear, well, you obviously can't stay here. Look, I'll call you a cap. Where do you live?' But Merrily had no home, so he could only look sadly at his feet, which he noticed were naked, as was the rest of him, except for a sheet that the dear princess must have wrapped around his body while he was still unconscious. She helped him to his feet, and he was very shaky.' He took a step, and, as wherewithal had warned, the pain was terrible. He cried out against it, and as he did, vowed never to do it again, never to show weakness again. God, kiddo, naked and unconscious in the laundry, and what have they done to your feet? I can hardly turn you out into the street alone. She paused thoughtfully, drawing her brows together. You'll just have to come home with me, but... Just don't go getting any ideas, okay? And so it came to pass that Merrily the ex-demon was installed in Delia's warehouse. In the morning she asked him a lot more questions, fundamental things like address, age, occupation. Merrily supposed it must be simple enough stuff but he could not answer. Delia decided that he was suffering from a condition she called amnesia, brought on by the shock of the attack. As this seemed to do as an explanation, Merrily left it at that. In his confusion during her interrogation, he even mispronounced his own name, so from that time on, to Delia, he was Mel. There was little magic in that syllable, Merrily felt, but it would do. Delia helped him to find work. On weeknights, he washed dishes in Purgatory's kitchen, and on Saturdays, he helped behind the bar at happy hour. This was a great trial for him because to be on his feet all evening was excruciating agony. But he hid his pain, he smiled and laughed with the customers, everybody took to Merrily, for although he no longer possessed demonic levels of charm, he still had more than enough left over to make him a very sociably adept human. As well as this, he was incredibly lovely to look at, by mortal standards. His dark lashes framed eyes, that in some lights were a lovely, warm, lustrous, golden brown, and in others amber like a cat's. His lips were ruddy and plump and curved like cupids. His cheekbones were high and prominent, lending a certain dignified austerity to a face that otherwise might have been just a little too pretty. He was tall, but light and wiry with beautifully contoured muscles that were the envy of all the men who met him and caused the women to want to touch him, all women except Delia. Yes, they all fancied funny, handsome, mysterious Mel, Delia's amnesiac foundling. Even those who already had men of their own. Merrily remembered the words of his sister. The human heart is a frail and unreliable thing. They shared the housework, the shopping and the cooking. And after a month or so, the new household of two was well established. Delia and Merrily became inseparable friends. It was only sometimes, at night after he'd done his shift at purgatory and Delia had done her dance, that he became sad. She would be curled up on the sofa with a book. He would sit as near to her as he could without causing her alarm, pretending to watch a late-night movie. He might reach out and hold her hand for a moment, and she'd smile up at him. And he would ask her the unaskable with his eyes, and she would reply with her own. You are my dear, clever, beautiful, irreplaceable friend. How lucky I am to have found you and then perhaps, if they'd shared a glass of the sweet wine she liked to drink before going to bed, she might confide in him how terribly she missed her lover, Bruno, whose home was on the other side of the world. What kind of creatures are these, wondered Merrily, who would let mere geography stand in the way of what they thought of as true love? Still, aloud he sympathised, while inwardly cursing the Brazilian bastard to hell. She told him how Bruno had found her and saved her that time at the airport when there'd been that terrorist bomb explosion. She'd not even known Bruno was there that day. Then suddenly, there he was, a vision of splendour. Brave Bruno, rushing into that holocaust of fire and smoke. She would certainly have died, she told Merrily, had he not come. Merrily had to nod sagely and agree that, yes, Bruno was the best and bravest of men. What else could he say? And since then, she told him, She and beautiful Bruno had re-established communication. They wrote each other funny letters. She showed Merrily one or two. He did not understand Bruno's humour. They often phoned each other at night and were in regular email contact. He was sweet and good and she need only be patient. One day he had said to her, we'll work out a way to be together, and poor Merrily had to say, Oh, how wonderful. Delia took Merrily to parties and picnics and concerts and restaurants. He was sure that with time and patience, she'd come to see that he could be much more than just a friend, that he was meant to be her lover, her warm, sweet, human lover, who had sacrificed his home and the family he adored on the altar of his desire for her, and his desire to be like her, human and ensouled, a candidate for eternity. Merrily knew that his hopes were not in vain. He knew that her love for Bruno was an illusory thing. He, Merrily, the ethereal being who had transformed himself from air and light to warmth and substance for her sake, he, Merrily, was the one who was meant for her. Did she not laugh and joke and play when she was with him? He knew that he made her happy. And whenever she spoke of Bruno, though her eyes were bright, her hands trembled and her voice was full of anxiety. Yes. Merrily was convinced that it was all just a matter of time and perhaps he was right. The problem was he did not have that time. For one morning when they were on their way out to meet up with a party of Delia's friends another one of those envelopes with a Brazilian postcard was slipped through the letterbox. Delia snatched it up greedily and read it there and then once to herself then aloud to Merrily so that he could share her joy. The following week Bruno arrived. He moved into Delia's warehouse, into her room. He'd taken a break from his work and he had decided to spend it with his little honey eater. How this and other endearments tore at Merrily's heart and now instead of the two of them there were three. That is, on good days, for much of the time, particularly in the evenings, Delia and Bruno would go out alone. Merrily would hear them returning after midnight, sometimes laughing, sometimes murmuring phrases he couldn't catch. At these times both voices were soft and very tender. They would retire to Delia's alcove at the other end of the warehouse and Merrily would pull the blankets up over his ears to drown out the sound of their lovemaking. A week later Bruno was gone, but Delia did not mind this too much. She had her assurance. She had her airline ticket. She had only to organize her affairs in her hometown, which would take no more than a month, and then she would join Bruno in Brazil. You see, she explained to Merrily, her eyes glowing with excitement, we have it all worked out, and guess what? I want you to be my best man. Oh, look, I know women don't have best men, but for you we can surely make an exception. Bruno won't mind. He is the most kind and generous of men. Merrily agreed. Yes, Bruno was kind and generous. Oh, Mel, don't look so put out. You mustn't worry for me. Some marriages do work, you know. I've already looked over the prenuptial agreement. He's worked everything out in advance. Her eyes were shining like those of a religious convert. Merrily had seen such people handing out books on the street. He'd talked to them on more than one occasion. Strange and fascinating creatures, they had seemed. They all professed an absolute confidence in their convictions, But Merrily knew that behind this vigorous proselytising dwelt fear and uncertainty. Else why would such people, and his Delia was now one of them, have to protest so much? He feared for her. Indeed he did. In any case, she was saying, we will have to make it legal. Otherwise, how would I get a work permit in Brazil? Mel, you must come too. You will, won't you? Say yes. Merrily said yes. Ah, Mel... This is so completely and utterly flawlessly excellent, I think I might explode. That evening, after they'd eaten, Merrily was feeling sad and hopeless. He went to bed early, but he could not sleep. Instead, he listened to her moving about the warehouse, going through her papers, her clothes, sorting out the useful from the useless in preparation for her big trip. After a while, he heard her pour herself a glass of sticky wine and go to the telephone. Soon she was talking to one of her friends. So you think I'm silly to leave everything to join this man in a foreign place? There was a little quake in her voice. Well, a few misgivings maybe, but nothing that means... Oh look, I know, I know, so it worries me, it does. I know it's hard enough for relationships to work out even under the easiest circumstances, and Bruno and I will have the usual problems, plus the language, cultural differences. Oh, plenty. I know. Oh, God, I know. Merrily was frightened for her, but at the same time, hope rose in his heart. But then he heard her say, What? Oh, yeah. Merrily could hear a little smile in her voice now. Oh, Mel, he'd be perfect. But I don't feel that way about him. Simple as that. I mean, what can you do about that chemistry thing? A short while later, he lost track of the conversation because his heart was shrinking and shrinking. Soon there was nothing left but a cold, cavernous emptiness. How could so small a being as himself contain so much absence, he wondered, an aching nothingness wider than the earth, broader than the sky where he'd once lived in that castle of Cumulus with his father, his sisters, his brothers... By the time he was capable of hearing again, Delia was saying, You're right, I'm an idiot. It's perfectly obvious, isn't it? I've got no choice anyway. I love him. It's quite simple. Anyway, what's to stop us spending six months of the year in Brazil and the other half of the year here? It'll work out. Look, I know it will. I don't mind compromising. And Bruno is a man capable of great sacrifice. If only I could tell you what sacrifice meant, thought Merrily. You sweet, ignorant human, you irresponsible child. And as he said this to himself, he felt that his heart was coming apart at the seams. If I still had my demon charm, you would not see this Bruno for my radiance. He would be a pallid thing, about as bright as a heap of dead ash, as scintillating as wood. But there's nothing to be done. You've always just seen me as a pretty friend, someone to play with, while you waited for the real thing, while you waited for Bruno." After Delia had gone to bed, Merrily rose from the twisted sheets. He went out onto the fire escape and climbed up onto the roof. And all that she said to her friend on the phone is right, he said aloud. I am not the man Bruno is. I'm not a man at all. And now I never can be. I will never have her love and soon, very soon, I will die. And when I die, it will be as though I never existed. I have not earned myself a soul. A cloud passed over the face of the moon, a great cloud whose edges glowed like molten steel and obscured from mortal eyes from within this gloomy camouflage he could just make out the stricken faces of his brothers and sisters. Bushel and Nick, Beatrice, discretion and Indiscretion. they gazed down upon him in appalled sadness. Oh merrily they sighed together. What you have done cannot be undone. And we're so very sad and so sorry. Oh baby brother, there's no help for you at all. And their tears bathed the city in a warm rain and their grief was heard in the wind. And then they were gone, leaving Merrily to weep alone on the roof above the great city in the dark night. On the departure date, Merrily and Delia took a taxi to the airport She didn't notice his melancholy, for she could only look ahead. The sad boy who sat next to her on the flight to South America was part of the present, and the present was simply something to be endured while her heart looked forward in joyful anticipation of her glorious future. As far as Merrily could tell, the city they came to was a city like the one they had left. It was bigger and louder, and there were certainly more people, but it was just another town, Merrily wondered what it was that had so captivated him about the mortal world and the works of humankind, for nothing moved him now. The band played beneath a magnificent canopy of red and gold and blue. There were dancers too, people of different colours, wearing gold tunics and silver sandals, their hair set about with brilliant little birds and every kind of jewel. But none was so lovely as the dancing girl. Princess Delia, on the night he had first fallen in love with her, or on this day, the day of her wedding. Her mass of black hair was arranged like that of a medieval lady. She was wearing high-waisted dress of creamy lace with long, close-fitting sleeves. She carried a bouquet of violets that matched her eyes, whose edges she had outlined in deep, dark blue. How those eyes of hers sparkled when she gazed into Bruno's face, Merrily now understood how futile his quest had been for never, not once, had her face glowed with such happiness when she had looked upon him. The priest mouthed the words that would symbolically join the couple together forever. Delia and Bruno signed the contract. Merrily knew that his life was over. He left the wedding party and walked away into the darkening city. He gazed up at the blank, moonless night, then down to where, far below, the human traffic played and loved and hated and hoped and played some more. Soon too soon they would be consumed by the very passions that gave them life. Merrily, Merrily look up, we are here. Merrily looked up into the sky. The clouds parted and there once more were the faces of his brothers and sisters. We have been to see wherewithal, they called, and he's given us the means by which to return you to your demon being. At first Merrily's spirits rose, but then he remembered from bitter experience that wherewithal would not give anything away for free. And what must I give in payment for this second lease on life? Her life for yours, Merrily, cried Nick. Here, from the sky there fell a little key, This is the key to the bridal suite. You will need it, said Nick, and also this. Merrily noticed a faint glow before him, a glow which gained in brightness as he watched. The light formed itself into the shape of a little knife. And now Beatrice's sweet voice rang out above the others. Take this blade, Merrily. And when he hesitated, they cried out in one voice, please take it. Merrily snatched the knife from the air. He felt its cool weight in his palm. Then Beatrice was speaking again. Before the first light, plunge it into the breast of she who has caused you and us all this grief. Her blood will fall upon you, and you will become again what you were. Her dying breath will waft over you and carry you back to us. You will be merrily the trickster again, our little brother, our joy. Her life is no great thing, Merrily, said in discretion. For after all, mortal existence is brief no matter what. And then her soul will endure for all eternity. But for you, one life is all there is. Think on it, and you'll see that you must do as we bid. Mortal existence is brief, repeated Merrily to himself as the great cloud rolled away, leaving him alone with the moon, the key and the dagger. After a long time, he made his way to the place where his princess and her groom were sleeping. He pressed his ear to the door, but there were no voices, there was no sound at all. He inserted the key in the lock and turned it very gently. He entered the room and there, amongst disordered sheets and blankets, lay Delia and her husband. Her head lay on his shoulder and strands of fine black hair made a delicate filigree pattern over his chest. Merrily reached over her to touch, ever so softly, a strand of this precious soft hair. Already dead, he whispered under his breath. Even as you live, your skin, your nails, your hair are all dying on your body. You look so sweet and fresh, but already you're in a state of mortal decay. Merrily's mind and body felt completely numb, except for a single center of sensation. The pain in his heart. The knife was light in his hand. He raised it above Delia's soft, unconscious body. Bruno murmured softly in his sleep and curved his arm around her shoulder. His hand cradled one small, pink-tipped breast. A pale blue vein pulsed at her temple, full of miraculous, life-giving animal blood. Blood to sustain her fragile, mortal heart. Sweet, unreliable human heart my heart, my love, said Merrily. He dropped the knife to the carpet but stayed a moment longer to listen to the peaceful sound of their breath rising and falling together. Then he crept away and out into the grey dawn which was already softening the black edges of the night. He knew that soon he would be gazing upon the last sunrise he would ever see and as he thought this thought, He felt the first deadly breath of dawn upon his brow. The touch was gentle, it did not hurt him at all. He felt his body as a fragile mass of loosely woven fibres which were softly but very surely unravelling. Softly and surely Merrily's flesh and the bones of his body were dissolving. His brothers and sisters felt a light go out in their world when Merrily died and the heavens became dark and the rain that was their tears fell upon the earth. When Merrily died, the shaman felt the flame that had invested him with new vigour flicker and depart. His husk of a body hung on its tattered web as it had done before and he cursed the stubbornness of the little demon. He cursed the waste. But when Merrily died, the energy that was his being did not dissolve into nothingness. It had to go somewhere. Merrily was no longer a thing of flesh in human form, nor was he the entity of spirit matter that he had been. He was something in between the two, something for which there is no name. Yet this nameless, weightless thing, this almost nothing, was something, for nothing that has ever existed in any world can ever truly cease to be. Somewhere in a large Brazilian town, The day dawned clear and bright upon an empty, rain-wet street. The source of brightness that had once been Merrily attached itself to a beam of light which, after a little time, penetrated the drawn curtains of the room where Delia and Bruno slept. The lovers lay within a cocoon of warmth and light. When Merrily died, Delia and Bruno awoke to a transformed world where there was no more uncertainty, no more anxiety about their future. When Delia looked into her lover's face she knew that any fear, any last nagging residue of doubt, had vanished. At last, as a being lighter than light itself, Merrily had found his way into his princess's heart. At last, Merrily was his own love. And he stayed there, at the centre of her mortal being, Investing every day of the life she lived with her husband with the purest joy and the most constant love that is possible for an unreliable human heart to feel.
1: Terra Incognita Speculative Fiction Terra Incognita Reviews This month's review book is Star Wars The Force Unleashed by Sean Williams, published by Titan Books. Unless you've been living in a galaxy far, far away, you'll be more than passingly familiar with the Star Wars saga. Since the first movies, the history of Star Wars has been filled in by prequels, books, graphic novels and computer games. But the era immediately before Luke Skywalker left off Bullseying Womp Rats in his T-16 to go head-to-head with the Death Star has been out of bounds. That is until the release of the multi-platform computer game The Force Unleashed and the graphic novel of the same name. Now the task of novelizing this important period of Star Wars history has fallen to Sean Williams. Sean is no stranger to the Star Wars universe, co-authoring the best-selling Force Heretic series with longtime collaborator Shane Dix. The Force Unleashed follows the story of the Sith Apprentice of Darth Vader, known only as Starkiller as he goes about his master's bidding to track down and kill those Jedi knights who escaped execution as a result of Order 66. In this he's ably assisted by Imperial pilot extraordinaire Juno Eclipse. But the young Sith's destiny takes a sharp turn for the worse when his part in Darth Vader's conspiracy to kill the Emperor and take control of the Empire is discovered, and he is, apparently, killed. And so the conditions are set for a series of events that will ultimately lead to the birth of the Rebel Alliance, which features so heavily in the first three movies. Unavoidably, the origin of this chapter of Star Wars history, as a script for a computer game, does intrude on the development of the novel's plot. The game, after all, is required to set a series of increasingly difficult challenges, battles with Jedi, droids and galactic criminals, for the point of view character. Particularly in the early section of the story, there's a strong feeling of defeating Objective A so our hero can move on to defeat Objective B and so on. But in order to be sustainable, a novel needs to be about more than that. Sean has been a bit coy about taking credit for the Force Unleashed novel, as the story is wholly based on Hayden Blackman's game script and subsequent graphic novel. It's difficult, without being part of the process, to know where the original skeleton of the story ends and the creative input of the novel writer begins. But having read the novel, the comic, and a walkthrough of the game, it's clear that Sean's input has been significant. The great thing about a novel is the ability to put us inside the characters' heads and to really make us feel the action. That's what's been achieved here. While the plot may not be as well balanced as it would have been if left to his own devices, Sean creates an internally consistent continuum for his characters as they move from loyal minions of the Empire towards a new understanding about the Emperor, the galaxy, their own origins and what they believe to be right. The action scenes are also beautifully realised. The driver to the computer game was the ability for the player to use the Force in new and exciting ways. In the novel, Sean describes how Starkiller taps into the Force, the nature of that strange, all-pervasive energy field, and what it's like to experience the power of the Force and to bring down, for example, an Imperial Star Destroyer as if it were a toy plane. If I had one quibble, it would be the believability of the nascent romance between Starkiller and Juno Eclipse, I felt there wasn't enough time in all the rushing around the galaxy and not enough moments between them to establish the foundations of the feelings they carried for each other in the later sections. Having said that, The Force Unleashed is what it should be, a romp, and a superior one at that in the Star Wars legend. It no doubt adds significantly to the gameplay experience and if you're not hardwired to your Xbox, it's a fun read. Three stars. Star Wars The Force Unleashed is published in Australia by Titan books. You have been listening to Terra Incognita Australian speculative fiction podcast. Visit TISF.com.au for links to the featured author's websites and for details of the publications. Stories are copyright by the author. Book reviews are copyright Keith Stevenson 2009. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 Australian Licence. See our website for details. Please tune in next month for another podcast of the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it.